Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Heart-to-Heart -Heart Clinical Intensive, Considerations for Rhythm Control Post-Cabana, is provided in partnership with Medtelligence and supported by an independent educational grant from Santa Fe, U.S. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. And here's your host, Dr. Andrew Epstein. So my charge today is to address uh, these five points. And uh, I'll review them, and you'll see this slide again as a segue in between uh, the uh, comments that I'll make. So one is to use Cabana as a, uh, in a discussion with patients and share decision-making about how to be treated talk a little bit about quality of life and uh, how do we judge how much uh, AF is important to an individual. We'll talk about uh, uh, patients with asymptomatic AF where uh, quality of life really isn't an issue because they don't feel bad. Heart failure is something uh, that we see and as uh, Dr. Singh mentioned, 15% only of patients in Cabana had heart failure. But uh, this is an important group because our choices of uh, drug versus ablation um, is influenced by that diagnosis. And finally, what do we do with the patients who are not candidates for ablation? So let's start with the first bullet, the selective approach to AF ablation. This just, uh, again, reminds us of the uh, Cabana endpoint, that for the composite endpoint, uh, that uh, was discussed, there was no significant difference. And I think one of the things that um, all of us will uh, want to talk about afterwards, and uh, Jag and I may fall on different sides of the street a little bit on this, is there's uh, when you are a statistician and you look at a trial where the primary endpoint is negative, Many believe that it's statistically improper to uh, make a, uh, assessments of secondary endpoints when the primary endpoint is negative. So in this context, Cabana was really more than a negative trial, I think. First of all, it tells us that either ablation or drug therapy are acceptable uh, treatments for AF. And that's very different than saying, well, ablation isn't better and therefore the trial failed, or ablation is better if you look at mortality. There's a place for two players in the room, that is drugs and ablation. And then for higher-risk patients, the risk of adverse event, events was, in fact, very low in both arms. As Dr. Singh mentioned, the estimates of uh, 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 events was uh, um, uh, over, overestimated when the trial was being designed. And so when things like that happen, uh, trials are often uh, negative because they don't have the power to show a difference. And then finally, um, that ablation reduced the secondary endpoints of mortality and cardiovascular hospitalization, as was discussed, as well as uh, AF, has to be uh, viewed in the context of the primary endpoint being negative and the statistical issues that I uh, mentioned. So how does uh, Cabana fit into the uh, AF guidelines? And you'll see uh, two dates here. The 2019 update um, uh, was based on the 2014 guideline, which uh, Jag sh so showed and I will uh, uh, re-allude to. But the important thing here is that adherence to the recommendations in the guidelines 
is really enhanced when we talk to patients and that you share decision making. Having patients engaged is important. We really need to know what their values, preferences, and uh, associated conditions are that can impact outcomes of either drug or ablation therapy. Well, we do need drugs, and we need drugs because um, both in the guideline are acceptable uh, treatments as first and second tier options in the management of AF. Second, even after ablation, drugs often uh, remain needed. And um, when we read ablation articles in the literature, um, uh, oftentimes uh, complete success is defined as uh, prevention of atrial fibrillation even when drugs are continued. And then we cannot forget that uh, not only uh, uh, does ablation uh, have adverse effects, but uh, so, so do drugs, and conversely, um, both of them are efficacious. Now, this is an important slide, and this is from the 2014 iteration of the uh, AF guideline. And an important branch point for us is to determine whether or not someone has structural heart disease. And I'm going to speak to this in, uh, on the next slide. If there is no structural heart disease, our options for the AF management are much broader, especially with regard to drug choices. We can use dofetilide, dronetarone, flecainide, propafenone, and sotalol. If you notice, uh, amiodarone is relegated to a second tier there. And again, I would like to emphasize that uh, this is a drug with uh, uh, baggage associated with it, and I'll show you that in a moment. Catheter ablation is a, uh, can be uh, either used as a primary um, uh, intervention, that's the dotted lines there, and that is after shared decision-making uh, with patients. It is a class one recommendation, certainly after failure of drug therapy, ablation is warranted. Now, structural heart disease is a little bit more difficult because the class one C drugs, specifically flecainide and propafenone, are contraindicated. Um, uh, ablation uh, falls into first tiers there, uh, first tier, and for people with heart failure, amiodarone and dofetilide are really your only choices. This is something that's not discussed very often, but what, is defi what defines a structurally normal heart? That is, someone with no structural heart disease. What we're really looking at is the ventricle. By definition, if you've got atrial fibrillation, you've got heart disease because you've got a rhythm abnormality. But these individuals have a normal history, a normal physical exam, a normal 12-lead electrocardiogram, no uh, ventricular abnormalities or dysfunction on an echo, and certainly they cannot have ischemia uh, if, uh, when a stress test is done if the patient uh, is uh, in an appropriate age group for a stress test to be done. This is uh, from, a, uh, from the Kaiser uh, database uh, showing that uh, in terms of all-cause mortality after catheter ablation for AF, whether or not you're on a drug, it doesn't make any difference. This is uh, almost uh, uh, 4,000 patients on a variety of drugs. And the take-home message uh, from this slide is that antiarrhythmic drugs are not detrimental after catheter ablation when they're used uh, thoughtfully. Quality of life has been uh, discussed a little bit, and I'd just like to make a couple of uh, points that uh, the data are mixed here. There's no question that AF adversely affects quality of life, and this is uh, from uh, a study of uh, Paul Dorian's in Canada showing that uh, compared to uh, control groups, uh, 
both uh, post-infarction as well as uh, AF uh, patients have uh, impaired uh, quality of life scores. In the AFFIRM trial, which was the NIH study that uh, looked at rate versus rhythm control, even with a, uh, a rhythm control strategy, quality of life was actually no different than with rate control if that is done well and the heart rate for a firm was kept at less than 100 beats per minute on, electric, on a resting electrocardiogram. And then uh, in, uh, in contrast and like uh, Cabana, um, quality of life can be uh, shown to improve with restoration of sinus rhythm. These comparisons are a little bit tricky when you think about it because uh, is there a control group that doesn't uh, have uh, 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 an antiarrhythmic drug? Is it just ablation? Um, and is it uh, successful ablation? So is it uh, leaving you in AF with a controlled rate or are you in sinus rhythm? I think the bottom line is, is that uh, the people feel better um, in sinus rhythm or with rate control. And if you get there by drug therapy, ablation therapy, or a combination, it's okay. Third is what to do with asymptomatic AF. And this is an area of expertise for Dr. Mattel, actually, and he touched on this a bit with the, uh, the large armamentarium we have now of uh, ways to look for AF in patients. The more intense the monitoring, uh, the uh, greater is the yield of looking. Maybe one thing we can talk about in our discussion is the uh, Apple Watch study uh, from last year, because although it's gotten a lot of press, I'll just say that for over 450,000 patients that were in the study, only 153 patients were AF, uh, or actually diagnosed with AF that was treated. Another area of controversy when we uh, look at the literature in AF is what defines recurrence and success of treatment. Actually, in our guidelines, it's 30 seconds of AF. So somebody who has had uh, 60 episodes of AF a week and they get put on a drug and at five months they've had one episode, that is a failure according to the guidelines. But that can be a very, very happy patient. So we have to consider what is the AF burden and could that be the frequency of AF or actually the AF burden as we call it, which is the uh, percentage of time that somebody is in AF. And then the longest duration of AF is another uh, uh, um, uh, important endpoint. Now, this is important because of the stroke risk. And SCAF stands for subclinical atrial fibrillation. And importantly, the feeling is that the more AF that somebody has, the greater is the risk for stroke. And this certainly has implications on um, how we manage uh, patients, uh, especially with anticoagulation. And this just shows in a uh, broad sense that as the AF burden increases, however you define it in these different trials, the risk of stroke also increases. Um, uh, the slide was shown showing that uh, by the uh, time we're over 65, the incidence of AF and uh, stroke attributable to it uh, increases. Actually, by the time we're 80 years of age, over one-third of strokes are attributable to AF. It's a terrible problem. Now, here's the real uh, the, uh, thing that's difficult for us in electrophysiology. This is a slide that is from the uh, a TRENDS study, 
and it looks at the relationship of the timing of atrial fibrillation with 24-7 monitoring to the occurrence of stroke. The gray bars are the time when somebody uh, was monitored. The black fill-ins was when AF uh, was present on the monitor. And the red line in the middle is the zero point when a stroke occurred. And you can see that from the uh, top, uh, I guess the, um, I can use this here. On the top here, you can see that there's no AF at the time when a stroke occurred. Here, there's a little bit of AF before it, but it comes more persistent after that. Here, this person really didn't have any AF. So there's something more than the uh, presence of AF uh, that is related to stroke in these individuals. And um, this is why all of us, I think, here on the panel believe that once you've had AF, the uh, cat's out of the bag and lifelong anticoagulation is warranted, if at all possible. The guidelines uh, tell us that for patients with cardiac implantable electronic devices, such as pacemakers or defibrillators, the presence of recorded uh, high-rate episodes should prompt further investigation. And for us to decide about whether or not anticoagulation can be turned on and turned off, if you will, depending on whether uh, AF is present or not, is under study. And this is one of uh, two studies that is uh, currently on ongoing called uh, Artesia, which is randomizing patients to uh, um, uh, using a uh, NOAC at the time of atrial fibrillation when it's discovered by monitoring. But I think until this uh, study and uh, the other one are uh, published and uh, released, uh, people with atrial fibrillation should be permanently anticoagulated. Next step here is uh, what about patients with heart failure? And uh, there are a number of studies that have been done in the ablation and drug area, uh, uh, in the drug uh, fields in this area. One which has gotten a lot of notoriety because it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine is uh, Dr. Desir Marouche's uh, paper uh, from the Castle AF study. And you can see that the cardiovascular death here is uh, decreased uh, uh, by ablation. It's uh, higher in the pharmacologic group. Cardiovascular hospitalization as well as stroke um, um, is also uh, benefited uh, by, by ablation in people with heart failure. The guidelines tell us that AF catheter ablation is reasonable in selected patients with symptomatic AF and heart failure, and especially with uh, uh, low ejection fractions. But that doesn't mean that drugs can't be used. And this was an important uh, trial from now uh, almost two, de well, two decades ago called the uh, Diamond Study, which led to the approval of dofetilide uh, uh, tre for the treatment of AF with heart failure. And importantly, survival was identical in the patients treated with placebo as well uh, versus uh, dofetilide. So there is a place for drug therapy as well as ablation in patients with heart failure. And then finally, how do we manage patients who uh, have AF but are not great candidates for ablation? And this is where drug therapy really plays an important part. Now, we've known for a number of years that, uh, as uh, my pharmacology professor in medical school, Dr. Louis Lasagna, has said, all drugs, antiarrhythmic drugs, are poisons with a few beneficial side effects. And um, in 1990, Sharon Copeland published this first sentinel paper, really, uh, showing that uh, quinidine was associated with almost a threefold increase in mortality in this uh, sort of 
meta-analysis, it was called then. It's not the way we think of meta-analyses now. But quinidine, uh, or the study gave a signal that antiarrhythmic drugs can uh, be associated with mortality. And then this was highlighted uh, by the uh, cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial, which as you all know, uh, uh, used enconide, which is no longer available, flecainide, which is available, and maricizine, which is no longer available, showing that suppression of PVCs, at least, in patients post-infarction with structural heart disease can lead to increased mortality. So when we uh, think about drugs and how to choose them, uh, there are uh, many uh, uh, factors that we have to consider. One is adverse effects. Proarrhythmia has already been mentioned. We think about ventricular proarrhythmia in the form of torsad de plant with the class 1A. And this activity was provided in partnership with Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge. But the ventricular response then changes from 2 to 1, or a rate of ventricular rate of 150 beats per minute, to suddenly 240 beats per minute. Heart failure is also a complication with uh, drugs that depress left ventricular function. Amiodarone uh, interacts with warfarin and uh, digitalis, both uh, increasing sensitivity to these agents. Dofetilide has uh, uh, interactions with uh, a number of drugs. Dig we know about. And organ toxicity, we can't say enough about the adverse effects of amiodarone on virtually every organ in the body, but especially the lungs, thyroid, skin, and eyes. To highlight that uh, amiodarone is uh, not a panacea, this was one of the first signals from the uh, Comet uh, beta blocker trial for um, um, uh, carvitolol. And you can see that for patients with the New York Heart Association class two, three, and four heart failure, patients uh, receiving amiodarone for whatever reason had higher mortality. And similarly in the SCUDHEF trial, which was the combination of prophylactic uh, defibrillator, prophylactic amiodarone versus uh, optimized medical therapy for heart failure, uh, with uh, time after you get past about uh, one and a quarter years, mortality is actually higher in the amiodarone uh, arm in this prospective randomized trial. So how do we um, uh, choose which drug to use? Well, certainly uh, one is uh, what the patient wants in terms of where drugs can be started. Um, just to uh, highlight the class 1A drug, sotalol and dofetilide, because of their uh, QT prolonging effects, should be started in the hospital. Amiodarone and dronetarone can be started as outpatients. And as I said, because amiodarone is, uh, um, uh, with its organ toxicities, is now really a second-line uh, drug for us, a drug like dronetarone is something very, very uh, reasonable to consider if somebody doesn't want to come into the hospital. Now, you can also use this for the class 1C drugs. The X in parentheses here is because when you use a 1C in an elderly person, especially with a slow ventricular response, if they convert on the drug, you don't know if they will have uh, sinus bradycardia afterwards, and you want to make sure that they're not too slow um, when sinus rhythm occurs. This just shows the, uh, for adrenetarone, the uh, trial called Athena, which uh, uh, randomized uh, adrenetarone to placebo, showing decreased hospitalization. It uh, decreases the uh, time to first recurrence of atrial fibrillation and flutter. 
in these uh, two trials, Eurydice and Adonis, and this is the combined uh, analysis of those trials. And at the end of the day, when you uh, choose a drug, whether it be um, uh, amiodarone, dronetarone, sotalol, class C drugs, or placebo, the effect of um, uh, the, or the efficacy in all of these is about uh, 50%, with the exception of amiodarone, which gets you to maybe 60% uh, efficacy, but that extra 10% is probably not worth it given the organ toxicity. So at the end of the day, uh, we, I think, all feel that uh, we should follow the guidelines, consider the pros and cons of ablation versus uh, antiarrhythmic drug therapy, talk to the patient, and sometimes we end up using both. Thank you very much. This activity was provided in partnership with Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.